Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerbaney, Managing Director at the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. Danny, uh, welcome back. It's another episode of uh, Gov Actually. Excited to have this conversation today with you. You have an incredible guest. That's one of three amazing things that are happening today. And you're going to describe the guest. The other is that it's Friday in uh, in summer, and that's always a great day. And the third is I have a donut. And and as I explained earlier, that, that's the very reason I got into public service to have, you know, to eat donuts. So um with that, uh, you know, with that, with that trifecta, I'm going to turn it over to you to introduce today's guest. Well, Dan, I think you made the classic error of not knowing your customer or your listener because someone might be listening to this on a Monday morning without a donut. No, and it's true. Were, it's true. You know, you've just alienated them, and uh, you never were. Were I? I've given them the opportunity to think forward to another Friday when they too could have a donut. Now there might be people who are, you know, anti-donatists or, or find the relationship between public service and donuts offensive, in which case I apologize for, for making that connection, but that's, it's just my personal connection. I, I actually love a donut and I'm, I'm very uh, jealous right now, but, um, <laughs> but let's, let's get into the, to the episode. I'm excited. And as you mentioned, uh, we have a great guest and, our guest today is, is Stuart Shapiro, who is uh, currently the interim dean of the uh, public policy school at Rutgers University um, and has been at Rutgers for quite some time. Um, I met Stuart uh, back in the 1990s uh, when he joined uh, OMB in the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs after getting his PhD in public policy from Harvard. Um, that started uh, Stuart on a on a career and a passion around regulation, how governments regulate, um, what are the implications of uh, of government regulations from a cost and benefit standpoint, and um, what's happened recently in in the news and in the country from a gov actually perspective is uh, everyone's talking about the Supreme Court. Um, they're talking particularly about three big decisions the court made. One was on uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. The second was uh, uh, on uh, overturning a New York law related to gun control. And the third, and this is probably one that got Stewart's uh, attention and the one we want to talk about today, was um, the Supreme Court uh, limited the ability of the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate the environment. Um, and this is uh, maybe of the three, the least talked about, like on CNN and Fox News and MSNBC, but um, but but a huge uh, decision from a from a gov actually perspective and, and, and government. So, Stuart, welcome to the podcast. It's it's great to see you and, and have you on the on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to the conversation. Yeah. So let's just. Start. Yeah, go ahead, Dan. I was just going to ask: uh, Do we have to refer to you as an interim dean, or, or do we just can we just call you Stuart? Uh, Stuart is fine. Professor oh, okay. Shapiro. Oh, no. uh, Professor Shapiro. Shapiro. I like the sound of that. <laughs> that, yeah. that works too. I, I I know my name, so any of them are fine. Okay. So I just want to start with basically regulation. You know, um, 
you know, I think, you know, the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs within OMB is often described by DC insiders as the most powerful uh, organization you've never heard of, right? Because there's so much um, uh, public policy and so much impact that goes into the executive branch's ability to regulate. A, a regulation can really move markets and change behaviors in significant ways. Can you can you just start with a little bit more basics around the government's power to regulate and what that means? Sure. And some people have talked about how from the moment you wake up in the morning until when you go to bed at night, you are affected by regulations. Um, the, the standards that that donut that Dan was eating uh, has to meet in order, uh, I won't say to, make, to be healthy because the donuts are never going to be healthy, um, but to not be poisonous, uh, for example, are set by regulation. The air that we breathe when we go outside is uh, kept cleaner by regulation. The water we drink, um, the cars we drive, all of those are affected first by laws that Congress passes, but the details that ensure that the, the air is clean, the cars are safe, the donut is safe, um, all come from regulation. And those are done, those regulations are written by the agencies of the executive branch, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Food and Drug Administration, the Department of Labor, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and where you and I work, Danny, is where uh, all those regulations went through a funnel um, to, uh, to eventually get out to the public. They went through OIRA, the agency that is often described as obscure but powerful. I think if you Google obscure but powerful, OIRA is almost certain to come up um, under that. Um, and so that's where you and I got our, our introduction to the regulatory world. And as you said, sort of the vast reach of regulations on everyone's everyday life. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, you know, when you think about just going back to, you know, basic civics and social studies, Congress legislates, the executive branch executes, right? And part of the way, in the, and when the, the definition of execution has many elements, and taking the baton from Congress, who set out maybe a general legislative framework, and then making it work, sometimes you have to answer and, and go a lot more specific in terms of what that legislative framework means. And that's part of the execution responsibilities. And that, you know, in some cases, that's where the rubber hits the road, because the legislation can be at a very high level at 10,000 feet. And um, and the company that's sitting deciding how much it can how much smoke it can allow out of its smokestacks, um, or how 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 how, uh, how fuel efficient the engine that it's building needs to be, you don't get that from the law. You actually get that from the regulation. Yeah, Congress says clean up the air, right? Congress says donuts shouldn't be poisonous. Um, but what that means and how companies achieve that is up to the regulators, up to the agencies that write the regulation. How clean is clean? How safe is safe? Um, Congress you know, likes to be in favor of clean air, but they don't like to go ahead and say, and they really don't have the capacity to say, that the standard for, uh, for, for mercury in the air should be five parts per million instead of one part per million. Um, and so they tell EPA, go ahead and figure that out. How much mercury should there be in the air um, uh, that is keeps it safe for people to breathe, 
but doesn't destroy the economy. Well, that you, you've, Stuart, you've described the the current regulatory state. What what changes with the um, with the Supreme Court's decision? So, so yeah, this is a big deal, and not just because it deals with climate change, which is obviously an overarching issue on everyone's mind and has a dramatic impact, but the the Supreme Court decision has the potential, and I emphasize potential, to affect all of those regulatory decisions. Um, We'll do a little history here for a second, if you'll indulge me. Uh, The way sort of that civics lesson that Danny described, that Congress legislates and the president executes, leads most people to think that Congress does make a lot of the key policy decisions. And that's the way it was for a hundred years or so. But starting with the progressive era and then into the New Deal and the Great Society, um, Congress began giving more and more of those decisions to these regulatory agencies because Congress didn't have the capacity to make the detailed decision. They didn't have the technical know-how and they didn't wanna bear the political costs of making those detailed decisions. Um, Those that are in the regulated community, industry, sometimes schools, hospitals, state governments, didn't love this because um, all of a sudden, they were being subject to more and more regulation. Their costs were going up um, and they wanted to go back to a world, some of them, they you know, certainly voiced support for clean air and healthy food and, and all that, but they wanted to go back to a world where the agencies didn't have so much power. Um, and that is to some degree where the Supreme Court decision from a couple of weeks ago comes in. Um, West Virginia versus EPA is the uh, actual name of, uh, of the case. Um, and sort of oddly, it was about a regulation that wasn't in effect. It was about um, the Obama administration clean power plan. Um, those of uh, you that, that follow climate change at all might remember that the Obama administration proposed and finalized a very large regulation um, called the Clean Power Plan that would remake the energy sector, that would push uh, states in particular to change the mix of how their citizens got their energy for heating their homes from oil, gas, and of course, particularly coal um, to renewable fuels. Um, And it is a regulation that would have had a very significant impact on climate change and but also would have had enormous costs um, in terms of the the effect on energy prices and such. Um, The Trump administration stopped that clean power plan in its tracks. The courts were already on their way to stopping it, Um, but West Virginia sued anyway and said, you know, this clean power plan would have inaugurated a type of regime that would have been completely unconstitutional, illegal, and we want the court to speak to that. We want the court to say whether or not this was okay for the government to do. And so that brings us to the court case. And so the court was going to rule on whether or not what the Obama administration had proposed in the Clean Power Plan um, was legal or illegal. And so the weird thing is there's no actual effect immediately because the clean power plan wasn't there anyway. 
but the long-term potential effect is uh, is very very large. You know, it's you know, this, there's some interesting tensions here. It's in some ways the Supreme Court is basically uh, saying um, some of what is in this plan that the EPA intended to do is more in Congress's, like Congress has to do that, right? So, so you could imagine, so, so in some ways you could have uh, someone react to that Supreme Court decision and say, all right, let's, let's go back to Congress. You know, let's assume we had a, a functioning Congress and a, and, a, and a process that could actually legislate fairly um, with some agility. Um, you go back and you say, okay, understood. So you're telling me that, that, that the EPA took on too much responsibility, that, uh, that, that Congress has to do more work. They have to write more content and, um, and, and, and go down to a lower level of detail in terms of what's expected. Um, and then we'd be okay. Is that right? Or, or am I misunderstanding? No, that's, that, that's basically right. It's a sort of attempt to go back towards Congress making more policy decisions. Now, the operative phrase that everyone's using, um, you know, or at least us administrative law nerds and regulatory nerds are using um, to talk about this is the major questions doctrine. Um, that what essentially the majority in the Supreme Court was saying was that if something is a major question, then Cong it's Congress's responsibility to tell agencies, to give agencies more detail. Agencies cannot address major questions on their own. And that the Clean Power Plan, because it didn't just tell power plants you have to emit less carbon, but rather that it was a complicated uh, scheme uh, to uh, remake the energy sector and remake how we get energy is a major question. And that Congress, when it passed the Clean Air Act back in 1970 and amended it in 1977 and 1990, could not have possibly intended for EPA to remake the power sector. They wanted EPA to clean up the air. Um, so one thing EPA could do in response to this particular ruling is say, okay, we're going to restrict carbon emissions. We're gonna tell power plants how much carbon they can put in the air because that's more in line with what the Clean Air Act said. That would actually be much more expensive, much less economically efficient than what the Clean Power Plan was going to do by creating incentives for states to go ahead and move to wind power, solar power, um, et cetera. Um, but that still raises the question. And with this Supreme Court, it is, I think, a very open question because the minute EPA did that, the minute EPA said, we're gonna restrict carbon emissions. We're gonna just tell the power plant, Duke Power or PSENG or whoever the power company is, how much carbon they emit. The minute they put that into effect, you can be sure that the, the power companies will sue, the utilities will sue again. And they will go back to the court and they will say, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a major question. Uh, this would force us to close. This is a really big deal. Um, and yeah, it's not remaking the power sector per se like the clean power plan did, but it's still a major question. 
And then the Supreme Court would have to decide, okay, well, is this a major question? And with this court, which has long had a curbing of executive branch regulatory power as a priority, it's an open question as to how they would decide that. Yeah, it's really fascinating because, um, you know, as you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to take some liberties with U.S. history here and say that that today's Congress is less active legislatively than uh, historical Congresses have been. And this even goes back to the Obama era. And I remember being in government during the Obama era and it was like, you'd have meetings where it's like, okay, we're not getting any legislation passed or we're not getting any legislation passed on any of our priorities. So what within uh, our power do we have to do stuff uh, that's, that, that, that aligns to what President Obama was trying to get done, right? Um, and my reflection was as soon as the president tried to go aggressive through regulation or executive order, there was a lot of, well, he, you know, this is, this is uh, unconstitutional or this is a, an abuse we of executive branch powers. But then I think Trump faced the same thing and did the same thing. And now, and now you're, you, have, you have this tension. Dan? Well, um, President Obama famously talked about the pen and the phone. Right, that if he couldn't get it through legislatively. But what was interesting, uh, you saw at the beginning of the Trump administration, this very, very aggressive use of a, um, a limit on executive regulatory power under something called the Congressional Review Act or the CRA. Um, what's interesting to me is if, if really Congress um, needed to opine on whether the the executive had crossed any line or not, they have at their disposal the Congressional Review Act. So the Clean Power Regulation could have been subject to Congressional Review under the Congressional Review Act. I think what, what the decision was to choose a more favorable venue to an outcome in the form of the Supreme Court over than trying to fight it, fight it in the Congressional Review Act. Yeah, and this is a, a decades-long project of those who oppose regulation or think that uh, the, the state over-regulates. Um, you know, it, it's interesting to sort of first pick up on Danny's point and then, and then move to Dan's. The, um, the, the, the question of, you know, Congress dealing with major questions, the argument that many conservatives have made here is that the Supreme Court uh, is trying to say to Congress, look, you've passed the buck too much. You get off the hook by letting the president and the executive branch make these decisions. We're not going to let you get off the hook anymore. You have to decide these major questions. But you're absolutely right, Danny. Congress has a big problem dealing with major questions now. And that's very different than much of, of U.S. history. Um, I would argue that the last time Congress dealt with questions of this size was right at the beginning of the Obama administration when they passed the Affordable Care Act and Dodd-Frank. Um, I would guess that there has not been a statute passed that anyone um, uh, in the public could identify 
since then. Uh, they might know their taxes went down. They might know they got checks in the mail from uh, for COVID relief, et cetera. Um, but really, there have not been any major questions that Congress has dealt with in a long time. And that goes to the dysfunction of Congress. And that gets to Dan's point to some degree. Um, Congress has, with the exception of the budget, and even the budget is an excruciating process um, uh, in the Hill, much worse than when the three of us were growing up and it wasn't great then. Um, but uh, it takes you know months and months, it's always overdue, uh, so on and so forth. And that's for the one piece of legislation that we know Congress is gonna pass every year. Um, other questions they have just largely punted on and they, uh, you mentioned the Congressional Review Act, which was used at the beginning of the Trump administration to veto regulations. The funny thing about the Congressional Review Act is there's no filibuster. Um, the Congressional Review Act uh, resolutions are statutorily exempt from the filibuster. Um, and so that points, I think, to a big source of Congress's dysfunction. They can only really do things when they only need 50 votes to do it. And that's been so very true. I mean, we just had the news yesterday, uh, we're taping on, on Friday here. Um, we just had the news yesterday that Manchin torpedoed climate change uh, legislation um, as part of Build Back Better and the reconciliation process. So um, that's not gonna be a major question that Congress is gonna, is gonna look at. Even getting 50 votes is so hard for many of these things. The idea that you could get 60 votes for anything right now, I think is, uh, is, is seems to be a thing of the past. So we're up on a break. I, when we come back, I wanna kind of delve deeper into kind of this kind of practical reality that government agencies face in a world in which, um, you know, there's, uh, there's a, a narrower uh, set of activities they can potentially do because more and more things are considered major questions. And, you know, the government's built an infrastructure around a world in which there aren't as many major questions as, uh, as, as might be thought of. So let's, um, let's, let's uh, spend the, the, the next part of the podcast talking about like what, what people inside government uh, have to be thinking through at this point. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. Gov Actually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. All right, Danny, we're back. And um, I, was, I was processing over the break some of what Stuart said, uh, and I'm wondering what does this mean potentially for the regulation of donuts? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, d donuts are a major question, as we all know. So, oh, exactly. Right. Uh, you don't get much but more I think, major I think you could get bipartisan support for that. I think that one could get past the, <laughs> that could that probably get past the filibuster rule. Might be the exception that proves the rule there. Um, so, you know, and, and Danny talked a little bit about this before the break, but um, the, the, the concern about the Supreme Court decision is really what will this do to behavior within federal agencies? Um, federal agencies already, in order to write a regulation, have to do a lot of things. They have to put it out for public comment and get public feedback. On big one, regulations, ones above a certain economic uh, threshold, they have to do a cost-benefit analysis. 
they have to go to Danny and my successors at OIRA and say, is this okay? Uh, so there are lots of steps that agencies already have to take. And then some steps laid out in their own statutes, like the Clean Air Act or the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act, um, et cetera. Um, now they also have to say, is this a major question? Um, because if it is a major question, then we can't issue this regulation. Or how do we write this regulation so that the Supreme Court is unlikely to call it a major question and they'll let us do this? Um, you know, we've worked in the federal government. Agencies tend to be risk averse. Um, lawyers tend to have a significant say in agency decision-making. And the one thing lawyers hate more than anything else is losing cases. And so now one can see a dynamic within federal agencies where an agency says, you know, all the substantive experts, the scientists, et cetera, we really need to do this. We really need to regulate this. And now the lawyers are going to be like, well, 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 wait, you know, that, that sounds like it might be a major question. Um, I, I don't think we're going to be allowed to do this. And so one can envision the internal deliberations that are going to take place at federal agencies over the next five, 10, however many years this takes to play out as the Supreme Court starts to define what a major question is and as the district courts start to do that as well, because they left it very kind of vague in this uh, West Virginia VEPA decision. Um, and now agencies are gonna have to, you know, try it out and see, do we, is this a major question, isn't it? And the fact that they are risk averse and they don't like losing will mean they're gonna take, pro likely take very tentative steps. And so in terms of the long-term impacts on things like the regulation of donuts, I think you'll see less of it. Um, I, I think you will, because it will take longer for agencies to issue regulations because they'll have these internal debates. More of them are gonna be at risk in the courts. Uh, it doesn't mean regulation will stop but it does mean that it's going to be harder and slower in a process that was already hard and slow. So here's my question, Stuart. Um, we've been talking about major questions around um, in more intense regulations. What about relaxing regulations? Can there be a, you know, so, and I'm going to give you a specific example. Um, so, Thinking about, for example, the, the, the supply chain issues brought on by the pandemic and other factors, war, um, and right now we have a, a, a semiconductor shortage, a microchip shortage, right? And I was involved in a conversation recently where it was like companies that, that, that manufacture uh, uh, semiconductors who might want to do so outside of, of China, as an example, and do it in, in a more diverse set of countries in order to kind of uh, remove uh, limitations in the supply chain. Um, would they do it in the US or would they do it in another country like Germany or something like that? And, and the reality is if Germany can get shovels to the ground quicker and set up shop more quick because the US has a lot of, 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 of environmental regulations that are, that, that, can't, that are not waived at this point, then, then we're going to lose out economically on this uh, market to start developing uh, semiconductors locally. So hypothetical question. Now, let's say uh, 
the uh, administration says, ah, well, let's fix that. Let's waive all these regulations. Now, the other side, those that are very concerned about environmental implications of that, can they claim that EPA has, uh, or whoever's waived these regulations has uh, intruded on a major question? So a lot of that will depend on how much you have faith in the Supreme Court to be kind of what I will say doctrinally neutral. Um, theoretically, you're exactly right. Um, the it should a major question could very easily just as be just as easily be a deregulatory question or a deregulatory move as it could be a regulatory. Um, and so theoretically, those environmental groups would have standing to go to the courts and say, yeah, no, the, uh, the administration shouldn't do that. Look at the major questions doctrine. But two or three sort of chat problems with that. First problem is a lot of people suspect the Supreme Court is not neutral um, and that they implemented the major questions doctrine as a tool to get less government interference in the economy, in the country as a whole. And if that's their motivation, it's likely they'll apply a different standard to a deregulatory um, question than they would to a regulatory question. Maybe, maybe not, we don't know. And it may be different between the six justices that made up the majority in that decision. Um, the, the second, piece, and this has to do with the uh, those environmental groups, the environmental groups don't like the major questions doctrine, right? They don't like uh, anything that restricts the ability of the, uh, the, the government to go ahead and regulate. And if they go ahead and argue the major questions doctrine on a deregulatory thing, they're giving it a legitimacy they don't want to give it now. And so I'm not even convinced that they would take that approach. Um, the third caveat, and this is something we saw very much during the Trump administration, um, the Trump administration did lose a lot in court um, when it's it came to its deregulatory initiatives. Their record was abysmal, not as bad as their record in overturning the election where they were 0-60, um, but they were in single digits in terms of the percentage victory rate they had in the courts in doing uh, deregulation. So if you're going to relax regulation, you're also presuming that you have a administration that is more competent, slow, and careful in doing it because the courts will react badly to sort of sloppy, haphazard, let's get rid of regulation. Um, it, it'll have to be done with at least as much care as regulating is done. Now, Stuart, oh, go ahead, Dan. Uh, I was just gonna ask about this idea of the major questions doctrine. Um, how, for, for some of us, it's kind of the first introduction. Is this a, is this, are, are there, are there, big groups of adherence to this is there is there any is there any evidence of what a major question what the definition is is there any jurisprudence or any precedent it, it, it seems like it seems a little bit like it came out of the blue yeah it does um, it certainly is new uh the the case in which sort of presaged West Virginia EPA is one I think many of your listeners will also be familiar with. It was the one that said OSHA could not have a COVID standard in the workplace. Um, and 
in that opinion, the court alluded to, made, uh, gave the public hints that this major questions doctrine, which to that point had largely been a creature of law review articles and, uh, and, and academic circles, was going to start appearing in court decisions. So it didn't quite come out of nowhere, but it is very recent. Now, I should say that the major questions doctrine has a sort of far more sinister grandfather. Think of the evil grandfather um, that, 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 gave, uh, that, that led to the major questions doctrine. And that is what we call the non-delegation doctrine. And the non-delegation doctrine has not been used by the Supreme Court since the 1930s. And the non-delegation doctrine says, not only can't Congress delegate major questions to federal agencies, they can't delegate to federal agencies. Congress has to answer all questions of policy. Um, and the Supreme Court used that a couple of times during the New Deal to invalidate uh, Franklin Roosevelt regulations. Um, they quickly backed off on it as the court switched under Franklin Roosevelt, and they have never gone back to it. But a couple of the justices, and these are sort of the much more conservative ones, Thomas Alito and Gorsuch, have flirted with the idea of reinvigorating the non-delegation doctrine. I don't think they have five or even four votes at the moment for that, but the major questions doctrine is kind of the, the light version of that. And so it does come from a, a history of the conservative movement trying to think about what can we do to put policymaking much more in the hands of Congress and out of the hands of the executive branch? Right, uh, right. like that's uh, kind of a scary uh, prospect of uh, what 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 will the government do without uh, without these um, these responsibilities? And you know. And there's probably someone, maybe not in our listener base, but someone, if they were listening, would say, well, good, the less the government does, the better. But I, and I've shared, I've always had this vision, I've shared it, I think, on previous podcasts of the, um, the, the it's a couple driving and the, the, the husband is complaining vociferously about the government and how awful it is to have the government uh, involved in in. In, in people's lives, his, in his life and his business. And then, and then they get cut off by a car. And the husband says, gosh, there's never a cop around when you need one. Right? <laughs> and so, you know, and, and it, it, it reminds me of the fact that um, that when when stuff happens, like, when, you know, whether it's a, a hurricane or a pandemic or um, or 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 a war or or some something that's that, that that's kind of a, a, an injustice, a scary moment, um, People look to the government to uh, to and have an expectation that the government is going to uh, solve the problem or be the quarterback that that runs the the play to solve the problem. Whether it's law enforcement or the military, whether it's our our, our government scientists at CDC or you know, there's this ex. Now people will complain, hey, man, we're really bad at this. In some respect, you know, like. You know, there's there's always kind of a, a debate in terms of whether we're performing well as a government, but in a world in which the expectation is that the government is going to be there to 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 be the safety net for society in the U.S. Um, and now you're kind of stripping away the government's you know ability to to act. It kind of it creates risk, 
Um, and and so one question I have for you, Stuart. You know, I know you're not a lawyer, but um, but but maybe you can weigh in on 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 one legal question, which is, will litigation emerge that basically extends the Supreme Court and says because the Supreme Court ruled in this way. It, it could potentially limit FDA from regulating. It could limit OSHA for like, does, does it have ripple effects or, or do, do the, 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 uh, the, the, the smart people that are looking at it feel like this is uh, maybe limited to uh, environmental regulations and maybe even limited to the regulatory framework of power plant companies and utility companies? I mean, the, the thing about the OSHA uh, COVID thing is I think it's a hint that no, it is not limited. And I think every agency is going to be thinking about this and should be thinking about this. Uh, there's nothing in the West Virginia EPA decision, even while it was specifically referring towards uh, shifting our generation of power that limits the major questions doctrine to that question, that major questions could come in other forms and in other places as well. And so I do think every agency probably needs to be thinking about it. It doesn't mean agencies can't. I mean, there are going to be things like, you know, when FDA approves or disapproves a new drug, that's clearly within its authority. It's clearly something Congress has given it. Um, and that will continue. When EPA sets a standard for a hazardous air pollutant and follows the steps outlined by Congress, that's going to be within, unless we move to the non-delegation doctrine, that's going to be within EPA's authority. But when we think about new challenges and climate change is a challenge that nobody thought about much when the Clean Air Act was written, we think about new challenges COVID, for example, um, those are going to be things that regardless of which agency you're in, they're going to, to, to uh, be impacted. Now, one other point that you, uh, you mentioned, your, uh, I love your story about the, the guy driving the car, but I'll even go you one step further. Uh, the, the conservative movement in general is a little bit split now because there are those that sort of have that feeling we don't want the government to regulate, but there are others, and this is particularly uh, supporters of President Trump uh, and such that, well, we want the government to regulate immigrants. We want the government to regulate homeland security. We want a very regulatory state in those, uh, in those areas. And you see in Florida with Governor DeSantis, we want the government to punish corporations that behave in a particular way. Um, and so there are those within the same movement that gave rise to this anti-government uh, legal doctrine that are saying, well, 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 wait, wait, we, we actually do want the government to do some things. We just want them to do what we want them to do. Yeah, that, you know, it always comes back to uh, the, 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 the tension um, the, 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 the switching, in some cases, it feels hip, like hypocrisy, like, you know, we've got uh, all these uh, crazy congressional hearings when the Republicans are in control, but then the Republicans complain about the Democratic hearings when they're, it's like, yeah. it, it's a back and forth. And I think that's been going on for a long time. Can, can I ask a question about uh, uh, major, the major questions, major, do with that, do you see that doctrine extending to, to things like executive orders at some point? Well, so executive orders are, are complicated because most executive orders um, don't do very much except make headlines, right? The executive order well, that gave Danny and my can, office uh, regulatory review is an exception. 
but most of them are directions to agencies to go write regulations. Well, can I, can I give an example that goes sure. back to Danny's um, lovely story? Uh, that, that couple is driving it down the road and they're actually um, using their GPS to get directions. And, and the result of the access to the data from, you know, that allows them to get those real-time directions is because of the elimination of something called selective availability of GPS data. And that was, a, that was an executive order that, that said, you know what, we're no longer going to restrict access to um, highly accurate GPS data so that we could create essentially what became a massive new industry of, of real-time data and geolocation. I can't think of anything in a way that might actually be more of a major decision. And it was entirely done by executive order. Right. So I'm not familiar with that case in particular. What I would say is that in those, and I think they are relatively rare cases where executive orders do have big impacts like that. Yes, absolutely. They would be subject to this type of judicial review, just like regulations would. Um, and the, the idea that the executive branch on their own can make a major decision is really what's at the heart of this Supreme Court decision. I see a lot of litigation in the country's future. Absolutely. Uh, so look, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap us up with a quick story about Stuart, which is, um, so Stuart and I, when we worked together, we had lunch every day. He, we were lunch buddies, and then and Stuart was the, the the labor desk officer, which meant that all the regulations that labor would issue, in particular OSHA, had to go through Stuart. And at the end of the Clinton administration. Um, all of a sudden, Stuart started showing up late for lunch, <laughs> canceling lunches. Uh, you picture me sitting sadly alone in the cafeteria. <laughs> and it was because the Department of Labor had decided to issue this massive regulation on ergonomics um, that was like all consuming Stuart's life. And, um, and I, for one, was very angry at the Labor Department because I lost my lunch buddy. Um, but it was a very controversial regulation, and Stuart, um, uh, it, it turned Stuart's life upside down in terms of how much work it created. And then I believe, Stuart, historical fact, you can correct me, that, um, that it was issued right at the end of the, of the Clinton administration, like right at the midnight hour, the 11th hour, and then the Bush administration came in and triggered the Congressional Review Act for like the first time ever, right, to, to, to overturn a regulation. So all that work, all those lunches missed, and uh, and Congress just nullified the regulation, right? Yeah, that was the only use of the Congressional Review Act before the Trump administration in the first 22 years of its existence. It had never only been used once. And I will also point out that, you know, despite my efforts, OSHA would not count the costs of Danny eating lunch by himself in their cost-benefit analysis. Exactly. It was, very it was a travesty. Very that, that, would, that would have been priceless. That would have been priceless. Infinity. Infinity. Um, <laughs> That's, how do you quantify that? How do you exactly, monetize that? Exactly. Yep. Well, thank you for your service, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me. I had a good time. Yeah, this was great. I learned. I always measure the episodes by how much I learned. I claim to be a government expert, uh, and I, I hope I am, but, but in these podcasts, I always feel like, wow, there's a lot I don't know, and having guests on, on like you is, is super helpful. So thank you for doing it, and um, 
good luck in the uh, with the rest of the summer and next and next academic year. Yep, thanks, and I'll, I'll keep listening to uh, to your podcasts here. They're a great service.